be ghosts of Washington Old Hall, the tale of the giant of Penhill, ghostly activity in Gala Shields in 1841, and a strange listener-submitted tale of haunted boots. Welcome to episode 17 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Hello all and welcome back to the podcast. I'd like to start today's episode with thanks going to an anonymous listener from the United States who has rated the podcast 5 out of 5 on Apple Podcasts. As with many things though, with a positive there's occasionally a negative, and while I won't read the communication out for fear of young years listening, it appears that some folk didn't like the debunk of the story of Edwin MacArthur in the Jebra Jail episodes. All I can say in return is that as with everything in life, People are free to believe what they want, but belief doesn't necessarily reflect reality. So moving swiftly on, my first story today looks at Washington Old Hall in Tynan Weir. Nestled in the heart of Washington is one of the northeast's most historic and warmly atmospheric buildings, Washington Old Hall, currently under the care of the National Trust. The hall as it stands is a Grade 1 listed building. In the 12th century, the lands passed to William of Washington from the Bishop of Durham, and it is thought that there was a tower or fortified house on the site. 100 or so years later, a hall was added to the fortified house, some of the remains of which can be found in the current makeup of the Great Hall. Centuries passed and the fortunes of the Washington family grew, but then in 1613 the Washington estate once more passed into the hands of the Bishop of Durham, resulting in the house being restructured and rebuilt into a simple, comfortable gentry home. By this point, the Washington family had moved to Northamptonshire, where they became successful wool merchants, culminating in one of the Washingtons emigrated to America in 1656 to try his fortunes among the tobacco plantations there. Three generations later, George Washington was born, the man who eventually became the first President of the United States in 1789. However, this did not mean much further wealth for the hall back in the northeast of England. Once the hall had passed back to the church, the success of two centuries saw numerous tenants and occupants until by the 19th century it was a working class housing block, home to over 30 people living in what could only be described as squalid conditions, and by 1932 the hall was due for demolition due to its dreadful condition. An article from the Shields Daily News on the 29th of June 1932 tells us of the building's plight, as well as tales of paranormal stirrings. Disturbed, perhaps, by the council's recent threat to demolish the building, The mysterious ghost of Washington's historic old hall has again been seen walking. A tall lady in a long black dress, who paces along the garden path between the old hall and the churchyard, with an indescribable clinking noise, and ghostly horses galloping madly around the building, some of the strange manifestations stated to have occurred. At present there are 13 families living in the hall who are awaiting their notice to quit, as the building has been declared unfit. Mrs. M. Lowe's, one of the tenants, in an interview stated, I woke up yesterday morning at 2.20, she said. The room was very stuffy, so I opened the window and happened to look out. I saw the figure standing in the garden path leading to the churchyard. It was a queer sort of half-light, but I could distinctly make out the figure of a tall lady in a long black dress. Her hair seemed to be parted and brushed back from her pale face. She wore wide sleeves. She came several paces towards the window with a mechanical clinking noise that I cannot describe. Strangely enough, I was not afraid, and if it had come any closer I think I would have spoken to it. I must have watched it for about an hour, 
because it was after three o'clock when I awakened my eldest grandson, Alfred, to take a look. He also saw the figure which vanished when I heard strange sound like galloping horses. The noise began slow and then went faster and faster as though the horses were racing around the building. The noise stopped suddenly under the window, but there was nothing to be seen. The eerie story of the ghostly lady was corroborated by Mrs. Lowe's grandson, Alfred. The hall was saved by a local preservation committee who stepped in and prevented its destruction, and the decision was then made to restore the hall to its Jacobean condition. With the building work beginning in 1937 and finally reopening to the public in 1955 with the help of American funding and opened by the American ambassador himself. To provide further character, the oak panelling of the east wing was imported from the old manor house at Abbots Langley, and the south wing staircase from the White Hart Hotel in Guildford. In 1956, the hall passed into the hands of the National Trust. In the 1970s, the hall was also in use as a community centre and was visited on the 5th of May 1977 by President Jimmy Carter. The hall is still under custodianship of the National Trust and holds many artefacts associating the building with George Washington and its connection with the United States. Many events take place in the hall, from wedding receptions to paranormal investigations. The ghost stories about the hall cited in the 1930s haven't died, if you'll pardon the pun, but the common tales of the hauntings of the hall now revolve around a weeping grey lady said to roam the corridors, accompanied by a smell of lavender. A lady in white is also said to be seen in the panelled room, and is said to walk through the wall in an area said to be originally a door before the 17th century remodelling. On the hall balcony, a shadowy man is said to watch weddings take place, before vanishing without a trace. And oddly, the staircase in the west wing is said to be haunted by the sound of running footsteps, followed by a loud thump, as if someone has jumped from the last couple of steps, sparking suggestion that the ghost in question didn't run quite fast enough to escape being taken from its home at the White Hart in Surrey along with the staircase. A crying child is also said to be heard in the grounds of the hall, as well as sounds of playing children. A man in 1940s clothing has also been reported a number of times, and one of the chandeliers in the main hall has been seen to start swinging without the help of a breeze. Back in May 2004, I was invited to take part in an overnight paranormal investigation at the hall by the artist now commonly known as Dean Midas, along with his paranormal research team and members of the Blue Water Spiritual Healing Centre. With a 10pm start, the team split to cover the hall, working in vigils of one hour with breaks in between, usually to top up on caffeine. When we started, the building itself was settling as the nighttime chill set in, so we were subject to the usual creaks and groans inherent in all old buildings. The feeling of the team was positive, possibly helped by the friendliness of the staff and the general good feeling of the hall itself. As per usual though, once the lights were turned off, everyone's perception of their surroundings began to change. The rooms of the hall themselves were quite warm, usually enough to wander around without a coat, but in many places, especially the first floor bedroom and the kitchen area of the Great Hall, numerous team members experienced localised small cold spots. Some were easily tracked to windows and doors, but in some cases there were no explanations, and in those cases those cold spots seemed to measure 5 degrees Celsius colder than surrounding areas. In the Great Hall, I heard for an instant the sound of what I described in my notes at the time as metal clinking which I couldn't find any source for at the time. Most of the alleged activity of the night, however, was witnessed by the team I wasn't in, naturally, led by Dean Midas in the panelled room. In an attempt to contact the resident spirits, Dean had run a seance in the room, the results of which were loud bangs and crunches from the wall, temperature drops, and more amazingly, the vase in the middle of the table around which they were standing actually moved an inch or two, witnessed by everyone in the group. Afterwards, the room had a cold feeling which I can attest to, 
and was measured at 4 degrees Celsius colder than it had been before. With this rather interesting activity having just taken place, another group went back in and attempted another seance, this time with myself observing and taking photographs. The noises I heard during the seance could well have been taps and bangs coming from the back wall, or more likely could have simply been the hall settling still, and perhaps our own weight on the floorboards. However, observing the group under ultraviolet light did seem at one point to show very faint mist behind two of the seance investigators, who both reported feeling chilled, which unfortunately didn't show up on the photographs I took, much to my annoyance. Though I do wonder if they were merrily nervous. Today's From the Archive story comes from the Border Advertiser, dated Wednesday 3rd of January 1883, and is entitled A Galashiel's Ghost. A case occurred in the year 1841, in the busy little manufacturing town of Galashiel's. In Channel Street there, a one-storey house accommodated two families, while the garret above was occupied as a weaving shop. One of the families, Irish we believe, did not bear the best of characters, and their next neighbours had been in the habit of passing censorious remarks to their discredit. Sometimes in the course of winter, it was bruited abroad that the house was haunted. Strange noises were heard overhead in the empty weaving shop. Light articles of furniture in one of the tenements jumped friskingly hither and thither. Plates and dishes performed pirouettes, whirling about as if instinct with life or galvanism. And the old weaver and his wife were terrified out of their wits by having things flung at their heads by invisible hands. The noises in the weaving shop were loud enough to be heard quite distinctly in the street. And for many successive nights, crowds gathered round the door to listen, marvel and speculate. The Channel Street ghost was the sole current talk of the town, and all the natural philosophers in the place set their wits to work to find the cause of the bewitchment, for such it seemed. One suggested one theory, and another another, all more or less plausible, but all equally insufficient to account for some of the phenomena. Three gentlemen, sceptical as to there being any supernatural agency in the case, went and volunteered to sit all night in the dark among the looms of the weaving shop, confident that they would thereby unravel the mystery. The fact of their being thus on the watch, however, having oozed out prematurely, instead of being kept in the profound secret, the spirits made no demonstration whatever that night, and the trio got their trouble for their pains, and came away at daylight next morning feeling rather foolish than otherwise, after having spent six or eight hours in weary silence. The noises were recommenced on the following night, when no watch was set, and as there appeared to be no end to them, and no means of relief, the annoyed family determined to pack up their all and be gone to some less uncanny domicile, which they accordingly did. Then, and not till then, did the ghost cease its gambles. A close examination of the premises subsequently revealed the fact that there was a hole in one of the fur deals composed in the loft, made by a knot having fallen out of the unseasoned wood, and that a string had been passed through it and fastened to the treadles above, so that they could be set to work whenever the people below had a mind. The spasmodic movements of the furniture had been caused, as it was suspected, by a mischievous young woman, who had managed, by sleight of hand, to bring them about when people's backs were turned, or when their attention was purposely diverted. Besides, a good deal could be rationally accounted for as the effect of nervousness, and, to no small extent, of excited and inflamed imagination. The affair certainly furnished material for more than the proverbial nine days' wonder, but after the forced evacuation of the couple of poor rooms by the honest weaver and his nervous wife, it speedily gave place to another popular topic of gossip and the town's talk, 
and was relegated to the misty realm of traditional folklore. Today's second story is the giant of Penn Hill. Penn Hill is a prominent hill near Leyburn in North Yorkshire, and forms a ridge between Wensleydale and Coverdale. It was formed during the last ice age when the glaciers moved through the region. The following tale was collected by Richard Blakeborough in the mid-1800s, with folklorists since suggesting it may be a remnant of an old Scandinavian tale, or may even suggest that Penn Hill may once have borne a chalk figure similar to that at Cern Abbas. Local legend tells of a giant who was said to live in a mighty castle on Penn Hill, giving the giant a wide view across the dales. He claimed to be a descendant of the god of thunder, Thor, and made sure that all of the farmsteads and villagers across his domain knew it, with his vicious and fiery temperament. He lived alone in the castle, barring a single old retainer, with his giant kinsfolk giving his territory a wide berth. He surrounded himself with a herd of pigs and a massive wolfhound, which he'd named Wolfhead. The herd of pigs were his pride and joy, and swineherds from the local villages worked tirelessly to keep the herd in tip-top condition, with horrendous punishments being inflicted on the unfortunate souls who lost a pig or allowed it to get sick. Every day the giant used the swineherds and wolfhead to parade the pigs before him, where he could check each one. One day, so the tale goes, the giant was inspecting the borders of his territory with wolfhead, and on his way back to the castle he spied a lowly shepherdess on the hillside tending to a small flock of sheep. Thinking that a bit of blood and terror would cheer up his day, he set Wolfhead on the sheep, and the shepherdess pleaded with him to call off the dogs as the small flock was everything she and her family owned. But the giant just laughed cruelly and watched the ensuing bloodshed with an evil eye. The sheep gone, the giant turned his attention to the shepherdess, who seeing his gaze screamed and fled into the forest. With a dark laugh the giant whistled, sending Wolfhead after his new prey and then the giant followed the screams into the forest, coming after a few minutes to a small clearing where the dog was throwing the girl around, much like a cat playing with a mouse. The giant's laughing ringing in her ears, the shepherdess desperately grabbed a large stone and as the dog lunged once again, she brought the stone down with a heavy crack on the beast's head, sending it crashing to the ground in a howl of pain. The giant's humour turned instantly to rage and he grabbed a nearby tree, tearing it out of the ground and turned it onto the shepherdess, killing her with one swing. Grimly, even as Wolfhead regained his feet, the giant knelt by the dead shepherdess and dipped his thumb in her blood, anointing the dog's head with it. Striding back to the castle, Wolfhead trailing behind, the giant's anger blocked him from seeing the change in his fearful dog's eyes, or the strange lull that had fallen over the forest. A couple of days later, the girl's body was found, and a ripple of dissent made its way through the frightened populace. A week passed, and as per usual, at the crack of dawn, the giant was inspecting his herd of pigs, and when he saw that one of his prized boars was missing, he flew into a rage, screaming woe and promises of pain at the now-fleeing swineherds, then turned and aimed a savage kick at Wolfhead, who howled in pain and ran from his master. That night, the dog did not return to the castle, but sat well out of reach of the giant's bow howling at the moon. Deserted by his dog, the next morning the giant headed out to find the boar, and soon found the carcass of the animal struck down by an arrow. The sound of his fury echoed across the dales, and he summoned every man and child to the castle who owned a bull, with threats of death and torture to the families of those who refused to attend. The uneasy crowd gathered, and the giant demanded to know who had killed the boar, but no one answered, and the giant grew even angrier. He told them to bring all of the last-born males and their families to the castle the following morning, 
where the giant swore he'd kill each one until someone confessed. At that point, a voice was heard over the murmurs of terror in the crowd, but not one of confession, but rather of calm but stern defiance. The crowd parted and there stood an old man leaning on a curiously carved staff. Some say the old man was the seer of Carperby, an ancient wizard with the gift of foresight, but the legend does not speak his name. With his own staff raised, the old man told the startled giant that if he raised a hand or any weapon to anyone, or even caused a single infant to cry in fear, then the giant would never again enter his castle. Not wanting to show his sudden fear, the giant turned on his heel and left the crowd, striding back into his castle with a guttural laugh. The crowd dispersed quickly, noting the old man had vanished. The next day dawned and the crowd returned to the castle gates, bringing with them their last-born sons. The seer appeared in the shadow of some trees and watched the scene unfold, his eyes glittering beneath his hood. Inside the castle they could hear the loud sound of screeching, scraping metal, the giant was sharpening his axe. When the crowd had gathered, the giant made to leave the castle keep, when his retainer appeared before him. The old man had dreamt of nine black ravens circling the castle, led by a bird with the likeness of the ancient seer, and feared that the dream was an omen. He told the giant as such, but in his gathering rage the giant steered at the retainer and struck him down with his axe. A giant such as he didn't believe in such things, and he strode from the keep towards the castle gates. But there before him was his precious herd of pigs, all dead and lying in groups of nine, each group measuring one of his massive strides. By the time he reached the gate he was angrier than he'd been in his life, and made for the villagers with a roar. Meanwhile, the old retainer had not died with the axe stroke, and had dragged his bleeding body into the great hall. Seeing the truth in his dream, the retainer lit the straw and furniture of the hall alight, where some of it burned with a blue flame so intense that the blaze took hold in minutes, and before the giant had even reached the gate, the keep was ablaze. In his fury, the giant didn't notice the intense sudden heat behind him, and swiped at one of the gathered children who cried out in fear. Instantly, the old seer was there, staff raised, and he pointed back at the castle. The giant turned to see his home ablaze, with nine huge plumes of black smoke rising to the heavens, and he swung back again with the idea of putting the seer to the axe. But instead of the seer, the giant came face to face with a sight that turned the blood in his veins to ice, and the axe fell from his grip as he stumbled backwards towards the cliff edge and away from the apparition before him. Her eyes dancing with the fire of the castle, the wraith of the shepherdess stood between him and the villagers, and in her hand she held a leash holding the slavering wolf head. Ghost and dog advanced on the terrified giant, who packed away until his heels touched the edge of the precipice. Looking down at the jagged rocks below, the giant then turned to see the shepherdess simply drop the leash, and in less than the blink of an eye, the dog crashed into him, and both sailed over the cliff and to their doom. Today we also have a listener story submitted by Anonymous. The following tale is as it happened, and I was wondering whether or not anyone had experienced anything similar. In the 1980s, I lived in an old Victorian townhouse, which had its own fair share of spirit guests. You know the typical smells of perfume, shadows where there shouldn't be any, cold spots, footsteps, and the feeling of someone or something behind you. And oh yes, the place was active all right. Friends would sense that there was something about the old place, but wouldn't say anything in case they were ridiculed for it and as we were in our late teens there was a lot of that about. One night I came home from my local pub and after locking up I went straight upstairs to bed. In my typical ritual-like fashion I placed my boots neatly by the side of my bed and in no time at all I was asleep. 
The morning came and I rubbed the last of the sleep from my eyes. I dressed quickly as it was cooled and then I reached for my boots. I noticed that the laces were tied and I was sure that I had untied them before taking them off. I didn't think about it again that day as I thought the drink had probably numbed my memory. The evening came round again and after the last of my friends had left I locked up and went upstairs. Again I placed my boots neatly by my bed and once undressed I climbed into bed and was asleep quickly. The morning arrived as usual and once again after getting dressed I reached for my boots. I tried to place one foot into one boot but found that the laces were tied again. Now I was sure I had untied them and I knew that it wasn't alcohol related as I had stayed in and hadn't touched a drop. I started to think that either my memory was suffering from a lot of late nights or that I was sleepwalking that I was tying my laces myself and didn't realise it. This escapade went on for two or more nights and I was convinced that I was tying the bootlaces myself in the night and that by some way or other I was unable to remember it the following morning. I decided to try something and when I went to bed the following evening before getting into bed I tied the laces of my boots and wrote on a piece of paper that I had done so. My reckoning was that if I tried to get my boots on in the night I would not be able to do so and then I would perhaps just get into bed again. The next morning came and the first thing that I did was reach for my boots and the laces were untied. How could this be happening, I thought to myself, and have I got a poltergeist taking up residence? The following evening, I thought, right, we will see about this, and on retiring to bed, I placed the boots with their laces tied on the chair that I had in the corner of the room. I remember having a rather smug feeling as I drifted off to sleep. Again, the morning came, and I hastily sat up and looked towards the chair, where I could see the lack of boots. I looked down at the side of the bed, and yes, you've guessed it, the boots had been placed neatly by the side of the bed, with their laces untied. I laughed loudly as this was not what I had expected. This whole episode had a rather humorous element to it, and if it wasn't me that was doing it, then whoever or whatever was, it sure found it amusing at my expense. It only carried on for a week or so and then just stopped, but I did feel that if it was a spirit then it was trying to draw my attention to it, and that by interacting with it I had realised that it was there, and that was all that it really wanted was to be acknowledged. Thanks for listening to episode 17. If you'd like to know anything more about the Within the Boggartwood project, please visit the website at theboggartwood.uk, which includes Patreon and social media links. The link is in the episode description. So until next time, have a good week and stay safe.